We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. some girl to London and not get married? I mean, I am currently chatting to a British lady. Well, technically Welsh. So it it uh gave me some pickup lines. What is that line that Mr. Collins repeats? It's like, you will make me the happiest man. Something like that. Yeah. Of all the characters in this book, he is the sexiest. Okay, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. We need to like do the intro before we can talk about who the sexiest characters are. Indeed. And I guess I went last. Oh. So fittingly, it's your turn. My turn. Welcome to Reread, the podcast where we Woo-hoo. reread books that we read when we were 18 or under, which I guess is what you call kids. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we see if they hold up. And we just finished a long extended deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia. So we decided to read something that's like really similar and in the same vein. Equally fantastic, yes. And that thing is Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Wow. You you had no idea you who clicked on this podcast, even though it's like probably going to be in the name of the episode or whatever. OMG. Yeah. Yeah, uh, What a what a book. Uh, I read this senior year of high school. When did you read it? Uh, I read it in eighth grade. So I was either 12 or 13. (laughs) But I have read it multiple Uh. times since. So it's not like the last time I read this, I was 13 years old. This was the first time I ever reread this book. It's interesting for me because there's there's this whole context in high school of certain books being maligned by certain genders. Mm-hmm. And specifically this book, like collectively, all the boys were like, ew, yuck. Basically, this was the rom-com of books that we were assigned. So, of course, as manly boys, we're all like, dumb, that's stupid, girls suck. (laughs) Yeah. Did you encounter that at all in middle school? Well, I read it, like, on my own. I didn't read it in school, so... Wait, you never had to read it for school? No, I've never read any Jane Austen for school. Wait, what? Yeah. I No, I'm telling you, like, we had this discussion where, like, my high school, like, I don't think I read, like, one author of color, right? For high school. Yeah. I'm pretty sure the number of female authors is close to zero as well. Oh, my God. My high school should maybe be reevaluating its curriculum. But, yeah, I'm sure, I was trying to think about that, and I'm sure I'll go back, and I'm sure there's at least, like, one female author or something we read. But most of it was, like, white dudes. So never read... Pride and Prejudice for anything but my own personal enjoyment. But it was it was kind of funny because I managed to get to like eighth grade, I think, without ever hearing about Jane Austen. Ah, <laughs> Amazing. Uh-huh. And then this girl at school was talking to me about the 2005 movie with Kira Knightley. <laughs> and she's like, you know what? You would really get it. Like, because you know the historical context. So you'll get how much of a big deal it is when they like touch hands that's hotter than any kiss blah 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 and I was like I'm intrigued so then I made my family watch the 2005 movie with me 
and I loved it. So then I went out and bought what I refer to fondly as my Jane Austen Bible. And uh, I promptly mowed through all her works. So that's that's like my background with Pride and Prejudice. Fascinating. Okay. Oh, and well, wait. Yeah. One last yeah. thing. Sorry. Just to to add on, since people are, if they're continuing listeners, already familiar with my dad from the Chronicles of Narnia series. Mm. My dad is now a Jane Austen devotee. His favorite uh, thing is watching Jane Austen adaptation. <laughs> he watches the Pride and Prejudice miniseries an absurd amount. It's truly ridiculous. But uh, that's been the long-lasting impact of my <laughs> Jane Austen adventures on my family. Indeed. It's funny that you mentioned the Keira Knightley adaptation because that's all the images I remember most from Pride and Prejudice come from that movie. Like them making out in the rain or whatever they're not making out but yes but in the context of historically it's the equivalent of making out oh yeah they're like basically having hate sex with their words yes exactly so (laughs) lots of subtext to this book which i think is part of why i did not like this book when i first read it because i didn't get it it was just a bunch of people in high society Mm -hmm. and all the humor just flew over my head which is is a shame because we'll get into this because i think you know what's what's that book for like pickup artists the game or something oh god like honestly if you want to learn how to be romantic and how to you know quote unquote pick up chicks like you're gonna be much better served by reading jane austen than reading that oh for sure Anyway, yeah, so if the story doesn't involve mass murder at the end of the book or an impaled pig's head talking or I don't know, if you don't hit us over the head with a hammer, we were just not in a place to understand. And now, having reread this book, I freaking love it. It's... uh, Oh boy, just the first page alone hits <laughs> so close to home. And we'll get into this because I know the first line is considered so famous. Yeah, it's iconic. Yeah, we'll get into that. But there also on the first page is something that I think is is much more relevant, especially nowadays as a nearly 30-year-old bachelor where the mom and dad are talking about Mr. Bingley. He's just shown up. Who is this guy? And the mom asks two questions. What is his name? And is he married or single? (laughs) And it's like, oh yeah, I get that. Those are the exact same questions that every bachelor of my age asks about anybody new that they encounter. I felt very seen by this novel. I'm so pleased that you you were a convert because I think the first time you brought up that you didn't like Jane Austen, I was like, how could you? You know? Well, there are reasons, and we'll get into those because there are parts of this book that I would happily just rip out and throw away and never read again because <laughs> I just do not care. But yes, I call me converted because Yay. 
This book has changed the way I see the world. You have bewitched me, body and soul, and I love, I love, I love you. <laughs> but what about yourself? I know that this, I don't know how many times you've reread this book, but I know that you read it more re-recent. Re-recently? You, you reread it more re-recently <laughs> than for this podcast. Yes. So I think the last time I reread it was three or four years ago, I want to say. And it had been quite a while since that reread, but I do own the 2005 movie and I do rewatch it at least yearly. <laughs> so like Pride and Prejudice is always relatively fresh for me. I think what I was really noticing on this reread is some of the stuff that I think we'll talk about this a little bit, but like the narration is super interesting because it's sort of omniscient and then you duck into people's heads and sometimes the narrator will just straight up tell you things but the the interesting thing is that like obviously there's the whole like show don't tell philosophy of writing but I think the book actually does a decent balance of like it will show you something and then further tell you about it but I was interested in some of the things that were never told that's kind of like lurking under the surface that like the narrator never bothers to point out. But if you're like looking for it, it's there. So like, I think what I was really interested in this time um, and where I took the most notes were like discussing Darcy and Dingley's opposing economic backgrounds and how that like influences everything. The fact that like Bingley's money comes from trade and Darcy's oh, comes from land. Rose. <laughs> I know. Nothing worse than trade, apparently. I know. <laughs> but like looking at some of the like hypocrisy inherent in how, yeah, some of the Bingleys react to people who get their money and trade, even though that's their own background. So I think what's fun for me on rereads now is I can get really nitpicky and academic about it. So that that was a lot of fun this go around. I still loved it. I still think it's great. And I, whenever I reread Jane Austen, I think about what Virginia Woolf says about her in A Room of One's Own. Mm. When she talks about how Jane Austen would just write her books while sitting in this her family sitting room and being constantly interrupted by visitors and having to talk to them and then going back to writing and she says something along the lines of like can you imagine how excellent her novels would have been she'd just been given a room of her own to write in you know and the fact that these novels resulted from that kind of environment is amazing and really shows exactly how talented and skilled Jane Austen was. But I think maybe as we're getting into, we'll see what your issues are. But I think it's always interesting to keep in mind how these books were written, the environment they were written in sure. when examining them, because I think that's just, I couldn't write a book like this, like anytime, <laughs> let alone getting constantly interrupted, you know? I mean, I'm curious. I mean, there's a whole history of, of writers writing in less than ideal circumstances I, I remember like learning how like Faulkner wrote I can't remember which book it was he was like a security guard at some kind of factory and he would write during the night shift mm -hmm. and it's like yeah imagine if all of these writers had a room of their own just what they could have done with that which is why we should have a UBI <laughs> but that's unrelated. Well, actually, it's not unrelated because, like you said, class is a big issue that's brought up in this book. It really, like, all these things position these characters at different stratifications. And sometimes it, it 
makes sense. Like if you own land, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense that that would sort of instantly put you at a higher echelon. But sometimes it's also extremely arbitrary. It's like, why does it matter if you earn most of your money from trade rather than just inherit it? And I and I think that this book does poke fun at that because like you have some characters are landed gentry who are just absolutely heads. Mm -hmm. And then you have some characters who are who come from a trading background who are actually the most well bred is the term they use people in this book. And so I think it, it is kind of smashing the class barriers a little bit. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> shall we give a summary of this? Book? Yes, for like the two people on this planet who haven't watched or read <laughs> or heard about Pride and Prejudice. Well, apparently your high school, there's a ton of kids at your high school who have, who have never read it because your high school never bothered. Or they just read it independently on their own or watched a movie. I feel like it's pretty hard to avoid knowing what the plot of Pride and Prejudice is, but... Maybe that's just me. Well, I feel like there's also going to be a very gender difference here in that there's going to be a lot of men, that a lot of your male classmates, who they would never bother to watch Pride and Prejudice by themselves. That's not true. Uh, My classmates? Yeah. They're English majors. They have to. No, not your, like, your classmates from high school. Oh, okay. Sure. <laughs> not your, I was like, not your, um... Not your classmates in your master's program. Uh, <laughs> anywho. I know, that's why I was like, what are you talking about, Casey? Of course I'm going to read Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> All right, okay. So, Pride and Prejudice, for the uninitiated. We open on the Bennett household, um, which is comprised of Mr. Bennett, Mrs. Bennett, and their five daughters, Jane, Elizabeth, Mary, Kitty, and Lydia. And uh, none of these women are married, and that's a problem. Oh, no. Their mom really wants them to be married because their father's estate is entailed away, which, like, I'm not going to get into, like, the British law of it all, but essentially it's entailed so it can only go to a male descendant of the line. So, like, the daughters cannot inherit, and therefore their cousin, Mr. Collins, is going to have the estate when their father dies. So... Netherfield is let at last, um, and some wealthy guy named Mr. Bigley has come to rent this big house in their neighborhood. So Mrs. Bennett is like, he's going to marry one of my daughters, just you watch. And uh, they meet Mr. Bingley at a ball, and he immediately is besotted with Jane, who is really just the loveliest, kindest, sweetest person ever. And there's a joke in there about Jane Austen's name being Jane. <laughs> Uh, he's brought with him his two sisters, Miss Bingley and Mrs. Hurst, and Mr. Darcy, <laughs> who apparently is a very wealthy man from Derbyshire, Derbyshire, I never know how to pronounce it, I'm a fake fan. Uh, Derbyshire. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. And he makes <laughs> even more money per year than Bingley. And Bingley's making like 4000 5000 a year, which like if you do the math for inflation, which I did once, is a lot. I think it's like a million dollars. It's not quite that, but yeah. No, they theorized that like Darcy's making, makes like a million dollars right. a year or some yes. crazy nonsense. Yeah. Darcy's yearly income is like 8000 to 9000 which is like big bucks. <laughs> 
and they're like, he owns half of Derbyshire, blah, 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 blah. And I guess to get into some of the stuff I'll be interested in later, uh, Bingley's fortune comes from trade, and he's actually looking for a big house and land to buy to establish himself that way. But anyhow, so at first everyone's like, yeah, Darcy, we love him because he's so rich, so excited, and then, like, it turns out he's an asshole. So they're like, <laughs> never mind, we don't like him. And when they say he's an asshole, he's very standoffish. He's not interested in dancing with anyone who's not, he doesn't already know. He just comes off very proud and arrogant. He even says Liz is ugly. Yeah, yeah. Elizabeth overhears him talking to Mr. Bingley, and Bingley's like, dance, bruh. Like, why are you just standing over here? And he's like, I don't want to. And he's like, why don't you, why don't you dance with uh, Miss Elizabeth Bennett? She seems great. I've known her for two seconds, but she seems excellent. And Darcy's like, she's not handsome enough to tempt me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, I get it. Keira Knightley's not my cup of tea, but she's a very attractive woman. Come on, Darcy. I love Keira Knightley. She's so hot. (laughs) Anywho. She's okay. (laughs) More my type than yours, I think. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not from the attractiveness of Keira Knightley. So Lizzie is like, well, sucks for you, bruh. And say goodbye to these. And she goes around telling everyone, and everyone just hates Mr. Darcy even more. So then there's a lot of events which, like, increase the flirtation of Jane and Bingley, and they seem very much enamored with each other. And at one point, Mrs. Bennet sends Jane over to Bingley's house without the carriage, so she has to, like, ride in the rain, and she gets sick because she had to ride in the rain. And we understand now that's how, not how, like, disease works, but... Jane Austen didn't know that. And so she has to stay at Netherfield for a while, and Elizabeth ends up going to stay with her to care for her, and that, you know, involves a lot more time spent with Mr. Darcy. And during this time, Darcy notices she has a pair of very fine eyes and begins to be a little interested in her. But he's like, I'm not in any real danger. I'm just, you know, I'm just admiring her. I'm not actually, like, nothing's going to happen. And... The militia has been lodged in Meriton, which is a town nearby to where the Bennets live. And the youngest Bennet siblings, Lydia and Kitty, are very enamored with all the officers. Because they're like, men in uniform. (gasps) And I should say here that, like, Lydia's 15 years old. So, like, and I think Kitty's not much older, like 16 or 17. You know, they're, they're young. They're useful. They're young and dumb. Yeah. It's fine. Right. Well, I guess it's not fine, yeah. but we'll get to that. <laughs> Foreshadowing. <laughs> and one day, they're down along with Elizabeth, you know, chatting with some of the officers when they meet a young man who is newly enrolled in the militia, and his name is George Wickham, and he's just really hot. Don't be intimidated, Squidward. Try to imagine him in his underwear. Oh, no, he's hot! Like, Jane Austen doesn't straight up say that, but, like, basically, yeah, he's really hot and really charismatic. Everyone is instantly impressed by him. He makes all the other officers in the militia look dull. He's just, like, spectacular. And and Lizzie's like, hey! (laughs) He's the Timothy Chalamet of his time. (laughs) Why are you calling me out like this? Uh... He's probably more like the Brad Pitt of his time. I, I think that that's a more universal appeal. Uh, well, okay, that's fine. He, yeah, 
I'm here. There, there's something uh, Weasley about him. And when I think of Weasley, I think of Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> He's like a very good looking guy. Oh but you look at his face and you're like, hmm, but I, I don't know if I necessarily trust you. There's something shady about you, sir. Oh my sir. God, don't come for my Timothy like that. I'm just trying to help you avoid a Lydia-esque situation. You know, of course, you and Timothy have been chatting a lot. I've noticed recently. And I'm just, I'm worried, Morgan. Ah, moving on. (laughs) This is just going to be the episode of Morgan's Celebrity Crushes. (laughs) But, so, at a party, Lizzie gets some time to talk one-on-one with Wickham. And, oh, sorry, I forgot. Um, When they first meet Wickham, Bingley and Darcy ride up. And Darcy and Wickham have, like, a stare down. (laughs) And Lizzie's like, what is up with this? And so, when they're able to talk alone at a party... Wickham reveals that he is the son of the previous Mr. Darcy's steward. And the previous Mr. Darcy really loved Wickham and was like, hey, I'm going to help you out. Like, you can have a position in the church on my property whenever that position is open. I'm going to make sure you're provided for and cared for, etc., etc." And Wickham was like, but the current Mr. Darcy hated me. This basically says that Darcy was like, actually, there's nothing set down in the will that says I must do this. So you get nothing. Good day, sir. I said good day. And basically, like, now Wickham is poor and destitute without a friend in the world. And that's why he has to join the militia. You know, he really wanted to go into the church. And Lizzie's like, you know what? This sounds right. Like, everything that I've experienced with Darcy tells me this is correct. Like, I didn't think he'd be quite this bad, to be fair, but, like, she's just totally on his side, and she ends up telling Jane, and et cetera, et cetera. So then there's a big ball that Bingley hosts at Netherfield where the Bennets decide that manners don't matter. <laughs> oh, goodness, I've left uh-huh. out Mr. Collins showing up at all. Oh. That's the problem with trying to, like, if you follow one strand of the story, like, basically Mr. Collins rolls up and is like, hey, I want to marry one of the Bennett sisters so that, like, they won't get booted out of the house, which is nice of him, but he's also ridiculous. He's just an absurd person. Really overuses the word condescending. <laughs> yeah, and he's like basically worships his patron, the Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Who is also the aunt of Darcy. That comes into the story later. Right. And at the ball at Netherfield, where Mr. Collins makes a fool of himself trying to introduce himself Mm. to Darcy, which is like (laughs) a no-no in the manners of the time. But he's like, I must, because his aunt is my patron. And Lizzie's like, no, don't do it. (laughs) And Mr. Collins has also decided that he wants to marry Lizzie. So he's like following her around for half of this time. And Mrs. Bennet is just loudly proclaiming that Jane and Mr. Bingley are definitely going to get married. Mary uh, ends up paying the piano and making a fool out of herself. Uh, Mr. Bennet doesn't like rein any of them in. Lydia and Kitty are just being ridiculous flirts. And Jane and Lizzie are the only people behaving with any degree of sense. During the ball, uh, Lizzie ends up agreeing to dance with Mr. Darcy, despite having promised never to dance with him, but she's so shocked that he asks her that she just automatically says yes. (laughs) And during the dance, she (laughs) makes some insinuations about the whole Wickham situation. And so it's a very tense moment. And 
Wickham doesn't ever show up to the ball, even though he's literally like, I will not be driven off by Mr. Darcy. If he has a problem, he must go. But for some reason, he still doesn't show up. And the day after the ball, uh, Bingley has to leave in order to go to London for some business. And Jane gets a letter from Miss Bingley saying that the rest of their party has followed him because they're pretty sure he's not going to come back. He's not coming back. Lizzie kind of reads between the lines. It's like, probably, like, his sisters don't want you to marry him, Jane. So, like, they're trying to, like, plot and plan to keep you two away from each other. But, like, I'm sure Mr. Bingley will come back. I'm sure. Lizzie also receives a proposal of marriage from Mr. Collins in one of the most romantic proposal scenes of all time. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if we noted that, like, Mr. Collins is the cousin that the Mr. Bennett's inheritance is entailed to. And he frames, (laughs) at one point, Mr. Uh, Collins frames his marriage proposal as the most generous thing he's ever done. So, like, in that scene itself, he proposes to her, Liz tries to let him down easy, and Mr. Collins just, oh, he does not get the message. This dude is so f***ing dense. Well, and, and it's it's really amazing. And not to mention that earlier in the story, we're told he initially sets his sights on Jane. And then Mrs. Bennett is like, mm, she's probably going to be married to Bingley soon. So, like, what about Lizzie? And he's like, sure, why not? One woman's just the same as another. Indeed. Yeah. And when Liz... Liz has to, like, repeat her denial, like, three, four, five times, and then very dramatically say, like, dude, I don't want to marry you. And yet he still doesn't believe her. Yeah, even then, he's like, I'm going to entreat your parents to, like, talk some sense into you or whatever. So at her first denial, he's like, I am not now to learn that it is usual with young ladies to reject the advances (laughs) of the man whom they secretly mean to accept when he first applies for their favor, and that sometimes the refusal is repeated a second or even a third time. I am, therefore, by no means discouraged by what you have just said, and shall hope to lead you to the altar ere long. Let me let me just say, men, any men, white <laughs> woman out there listening, this is not how you handle rejection. Don't do what Mr. Collins does, okay? <laughs> yeah, but and yet, sadly, still somewhat applicable today. <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyhow. Uh, yeah, there's, there is one line I want to mention. Oh, yes. At one point, Elizabeth says, pay me the compliment of believing what I say. <laughs> it's like, it's so funny and so sad that this is. She has to beg this dude to just believe the words coming out of her mouth. Yeah. Seriously. I think I hit puberty. Don't do this. Ugh. And I will I will give kudos to the actors for Mr. Collins in both the miniseries and the 2005 movie. They both do this excellently, and I highly recommend watching both those scenes because they're hysterical. But yes, anywho... Days later, Mr. Collins realizes she actually meant no. I think I hit puberty. And so he is, you know, brokenhearted and mm. ends up being comforted by Lizzie's 
close friend, Charlotte Lucas, who lived, her family lives relatively close by. And Charlotte doesn't do this just because she's a really kind person. Charlotte is the eldest daughter of a gentry family, I guess you would say, that's like not the greatest off. They don't have a lot of money. We, we should mention that specifically Charlotte is, oh God, 27. Yes, this is a problem. Um, and Charlotte is, we're told multiple times, plain. Very smart. I think Charlotte is, funnily enough, one of the smartest people in this story. But she, unfortunately, isn't pretty. Excuse me, sir. I hope my horrible ugliness won't be a distraction to you. She has designs on Mr. Collins because she's like, this guy is stupid enough. <laughs> if anyone shows him the littlest bit of kindness and attention, he'll just snap that up. And then I'll have a house of my own and an income and I'll be fine. So within a few days, Mr. Collins is proposing to her. He's completely in love with her now. And Lizzie's like, are you serious? Are you seriously going to marry him? And Charlotte's like, yeah, I need to. I have to. I don't have the luxury of saying no to someone. They get married. Um, it becomes quite clear that Mr. Bingley is actually not coming back. And Jane's pretty broken up about this. So the Bennett's aunt and uncle, the gardeners, come and visit. And Jane decides to go back with them and spend some time in London. Just, you know, clear her head, be in a different setting. And Lizzie secretly is like, well, maybe she'll run into Mr. Bingley in London. But... Although Jane goes and visits Miss Bingley, um, and Miss Bingley eventually returns the visit, it's very clear that they no longer want to have that acquaintance, and it seems like Mr. Bingley no longer cares. So around this time, Lizzie gets the invite to go stay with Charlotte and Mr. Collins, and she decides to go, because, like, what else does she have to do with her life? <laughs> so she goes off to do that, and she ends up meeting the Lady Catherine de Bourgh, etc., etc., and then, like a couple weeks into their stay, who should roll up but Mr. Darcy and, and his cousin, <laughs> Colonel Fitzwilliam. And Lizzie's like, God this dude, who she fully suspects <laughs> of not only having screwed over Wickham, but also having interfered in the relationship between Bingley and her sister. And... Colonel Fitzwilliam unknowingly confirms this to her when he tells her that Mr. Darcy has, I don't want to say bragged, but bragged to him about having recently stopped a very close friend from making a very unwise connection. So Lizzie is pissed. And like relatively shortly after this, who should come visit to speak with Lizzie but Mr. Darcy. And he comes in and he's like, I can be silent no longer. I must tell you of, you know, my affection. And he goes on and on and on. And during this very romantic proposal speech, he not only tells her how much he loves her and admires her, but he also tells her how much he did not want to love her and admire her. Yeah. He's like... I've overlooked your horrible connections, yeah. like how much this would bring me down in the world. How much your family sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, and so if you would give me the honor of your hand. Uh, yeah. Just to interrupt again, men, between this and Mr. Collins's proposal, this is not how you propose. Don't do it this way. Don't. <laughs> say their family sucks. What are you doing? Uh. Yeah. And yet, somehow, he still looks like he fully expects Lizzie to say yes to this. And so Lizzie's like, 
sorry, but nah. All those things you said about how you really didn't want to fall in love with me, I'm sure they'll help you now that I've rejected you. Get over it fast. And Darcy's like, may I ask why with so little civility I am thus rejected? And then they get into it. Yeah, great fight. Yeah, it is a full-on, like, screaming fight. Um, And she accuses him of messing up Jane and Bigley. She accuses him of being horrible to Wickham. And he's like, so I see, this is what you think of me. Mm. (laughs) And storms out. And the next day, he shows up again when Lizzie's wandering around. And he's like, hey, not going to ask you to marry me again. But, like, if you could read this letter... Would be appreciated. So Lizzie reads the letter and it contains Darcy trying to sort of justify or clarify his actions for her. And he says, yeah, there were all these issues which would make me want to keep Bingley from marrying your sister. But also, like, I really didn't think Jane was that into him. She seemed like she was kind of meh. And so I thought, you know, just trying to make an advantageous marriage happen. And I didn't want to see my friend make this kind of marriage if, like, the girl didn't even love him. So that's that's his justification for the first thing. And then he says, on the Wickham front, you got it entirely wrong. <laughs> and he's like, yes, Wickham was the son of my father's steward. Yes, my father was like, you should get this position in the church once it's open. But when it actually, like, became open, Wickham was like, actually, I don't really want to do that. Can you just give me money? And because, like, he was already kind of showing his stripes as being kind of a scoundrel, I thought that would be best, so I gave him the money and he left. And it was, like, a decent amount of money. I think it was, like, 3,000 pounds, which is, like, a decent amount of money. It was some absurd amount of money. So then, I guess, apparently, Wickham spends all this money, and then he comes back, and he's like, hey, Darcy, can you give me that that spot, like, the church thing? I, I would like that now. And Darcy's like, um, no, I paid you the money. I'm, I'm not going to do that. So then Wicca makes the excellent decision to, if he can't get the job that way or can't get money from Darcy that way, he's going to seduce Darcy's 15-year-old sister, Ooh. Georgiana, convince her to run away with him and get the money that way. Luckily, Darcy finds out in time because Georgiana feels bad about, like, running away with a man and not telling her older brother. And he's able to put a stop to it. But he's never, like, advertised any of this because, obviously, it would impact his sister's reputation. And so he's been trying to protect her. And he's like... I told you. I told you. You can't trust... You can't trust Timothy. That guy's up to no good. Can't touch, trust Timothy. <laughs> yeah, so... At first, Lizzie's like, this can't be true. But then she rereads it and she's like, eh, totally true, isn't it? And she kind of like frantically rereads this letter like a shit ton of times because it's just a lot for her. And she does still doesn't fully agree with his analysis of the Jane Bingley situation, but she begins to understand how he might have seen it that way. So she begins feeling uh, not... It's not like she really wants to, like, go out and never see Mr. Darcy again. But she begins thinking not so badly of him. Because now she's got some clarification on these things. So she ends up going home without seeing Mr. Darcy again. Jane also comes home, and it turns out, like, nothing ever happened on the Bingley front. And then she finds out that the militia is leaving Meriton. I'm so sorry. This, like, summary is so long. But you really can't cut any of this out. (laughs) 
Yeah, there's like 15 different B plots and, it's, yeah. and they're all like tangled together. Right. So the militia is yeah. leaving Meriton <laughs> and Olivia has received an invite from the wife of one of the officers to go with them to Brighton. And Lizzie's like, ah, maybe that's not a good idea for like my silliest and youngest sister to like be going off with a whole bunch of soldiers and no supervision other than a girl her own age who just recently got married. Just a thought. But Mr. Bennett's like, eh, nah, Lydia will go. She'll embarrass herself in public somewhere. And then she'll learn from her mistakes. And Lizzie's like, eh. <laughs> but she doesn't actually have any authority. So Lydia goes. Then Lizzie herself is invited to go on a trip uh, with her aunt and uncle Gardner up to the northern area of England. And they end up going to Derbyshire, where Mrs. Gardner grew up. So she has very fond feelings about it. And on their trip, they decide they want to stop by and see Pemberley because it's supposedly this magnificent house. And Mr. and Mrs. Gardner have heard quite a bit about Mr. Darcy. So they're they're curious about, you know, everything. So they go see the house. It is like the best house. Like, <laughs> it is the most awesome house. And the grounds are fantastic. And it's just, it is, it is sublime. And Lizzie's, like, standing there being like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> she checks before they go to make sure Mr. Darcy's not going to be there. Because she's like, that would be really embarrassing. Foreshadowing. But, like, she's there and she's like, oh, my God. I could have I been the mistress of this place. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> like, what a crazy thought that is. And so they're shown around the house by the housekeeper, who's very complimentary about Mr. Darcy. She's like, he does oh so God. much for the people. Uh, He's such a good guy. He's such a good brother. We'll get into this, but I f***ing hate this scene so much. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. So at the end of it, they decide to go out and stroll around the grounds. And who should they encounter there but Mr. Darcy? How is he so f***ing hot and respectful? And... Elizabeth is humiliated because it is pretty embarrassing to like be randomly at the house of the guy opposed <laughs> to you and you shot down really hard. Just imagine that scenario. That's horrible. Uh, although she's worried he's going to be like an asshole. He's actually really nice, super sweet to her aunt and uncle, even though they were some of the relations that he talked about being very below him. He's very kind to them. He invites Mr. Gardner to come fishing in his streams, etc., etc. And eventually, Lizzie and Darcy end up walking sort of like ahead together. And Lizzie's like, I'm so sorry. I really didn't think you would be here. Like, I'm sorry. He's like, I came a day early because uh, there's a party coming and has some people you know in it and one person who I'd really like you to meet. He asked if it would be okay to introduce her to his sister. And Lizzie is now very conscious of just how protective and loving Darcy is over his sister. And so she's very conscious that this is a pretty big compliment. And she's like, I, I would be happy to meet your sister. So she ends up meeting his sister and seeing Mr. Bingley again. And Georgiana is just like the shyest, shyest little girl. <laughs> I guess not little. Actually, she's quite tall, but super shy. But like... <laughs> Uh, she doesn't have a tall personality, I would say. No, she has a, She definitely has a short personality. No offense to short people, yes. which I am one. You're not that short. I'm not that short. I'm very average height. I am like exactly average height. <laughs> but I think of myself as short. <laughs> I'm short in my soul. Uh, yeah. No offense to my mom, who's actually short. 
only five feet. Although, if you meet her, she's she's definitely not a five foot personality. <laughs> All right, back to Georgiana, who is very <laughs> tall but very shy. And also, Bingley's there, and Bingley um, isn't you know directly asking about Jane, but he seems like casually like, yeah, "How are your sisters?" And the, like, yeah, is is Jane? You know, I'm just asking for a friend. Is, yeah, yeah. What's Jane doing? You know, kind of kind of that vibe. It's like, are all your sisters back at home? How are all your sisters doing? <laughs> and Lucy's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And generally, they have a pretty pleasant visit, except for Miss Bingley, who, by the way, has a thing for Mr. Darcy, is, like, just the worst. Like, she was already <laughs> jealous before, but now she's even more jealous, and she's just, like, lashing out at Elizabeth. Thinly veiled courtesy. And once Lizzie leaves, she starts going on about how she looks so horrible. She's so tan and disgusting from the sun. And, like, she's so ugly. Her jawbone is just so strong and defined, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And she's like, isn't that right, Mr. Darcy? Or I guess you used to think she was actually kind of pretty. And he's like... For many months now, I have considered her the one of the handsomest women of my acquaintance. Oh, boom. Yeah, Miss Bingley's just f***ing left there, just like, oh, f***. It's great. But unfortunately, even though everything's going well, and Lizzie's starting to be like, hey, maybe Darcy's not so bad, um, she gets a letter from Jane, and it turns out that Lydia has run away with Mr. Wickham. <laughs> It's a big, big crisis because at first they were like, okay, she's run away to get married, which isn't great because elopement's not great, but like, at least she's married. But now it turns out maybe she's not married and that's a big scandal. So Lizzie, just after getting this letter, is like, I need my aunt uncle. We need to go home. We need to like help my family deal with this. She runs into Mr. Darcy and ends up revealing everything to him. And he seems very disturbed by this news. He's, like, pacing back and forth in her room. And he's like, this is tragic. I shouldn't take up any more of your time right now. Like, meow. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he, he leaves with those very words. <laughs> meow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, well, I guess if there was any chance he still had feelings for me, it's gone now. Because, like, every bad thing he ever thought about my family, this pretty much proves it. So, that sucks, because it turns out I actually kind of did like him. So, they go home to, like, help deal with the situation. Mr. Bennett's gone off to London to try and find Lydia and Wickham. Mr. Garner goes to join him. It's just a mess. And Mr. Bennett comes home, and they still haven't got any news, anything. It's Everyone's very concerned, including, like... They're getting a letter from Mr. Collins talking about how tragic this must be for all of them. And that's like the worst possible thing that could happen. But eventually they get a letter from Mr. Gardner that Lydia and Wickham have been found and they're going to be married. And all Mr. Bennett has to do is pay Wickham like a hundred pounds a year and settle a certain amount of money on her after his death. And he's like, okay, Mr. Gardner must have paid him a lot of money because like... It doesn't make sense for Wickham to agree to marry Lydia for under £10,000. I really owe him. So after they get married, Lydia and Wickham end up coming back to visit with the Bennets before they go off to where Wickham is now being stationed up north. And during this visit, Lydia reveals that 
Mr. Darcy was actually the one who discovered them, and he was there at the wedding. Lizzie ends up writing to Mrs. Gardner for more info, and yeah, it turns out Mr. Darcy pretty much did all the legwork. He uh, is the one who paid Wickham to make this all happen. He pretty much did everything. And Mrs. Gardner's like, I'm surprised you have to ask me for the info because I kind of thought that maybe maybe there was something going on. Uh, I hope you don't mind me insinuating. Please let me come and visit you at Pemberley. Bye! <laughs> and Lizzie's like, oh, you don't understand. <laughs> but shortly after this, who should show back up but Mr. Bingley with Mr. Darcy in tow. Oh. And it's immediately clear that Bingley is just as much as love, in love with Jane as he was when he left. And it doesn't take long before the two of them are engaged. Yeehaw. Yeah, Lucy's like, okay, clearly Darcy gave him permission to do this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way Bingley would do this without Darcy's permission. So she, again, feels somewhat indebted to him for making this happen. But he's left again, and he didn't really talk to her while he was there. So she's like... I can't really tell if he still likes me or not. And then she's visited by the Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And Lady Catherine's like, Lizzie, you need to promise to never marry my nephew. I've been hearing these rumors <laughs> that you have designs on him and you you gotta promise. You are not, you don't deserve him. <laughs> and also I want him to marry my daughter. And Lizzie's like, I'm not going to make any promise of the kind. Like, that's so rude that you're asking me this. Like, mm-mm. And Lady Catherine storms off in a huff. And very shortly, uh, Darcy rejoins them. And he and Elizabeth manage to get a, a little alone time on a walk together. And she's like... I've been really trying, Trying to hold back this feeling for so meow yeah i know right <laughs> it's more like jane and bingley are also on the walk and they kind of wander off to be on their own so they just oh, abandon them <laughs> there, there's just people hooking up left and right in this party for oh, sure oh yeah but lucy's like sorry if you didn't want to hear anything about this but like thank you so much for what you did for lydia like i'm so indebted to you that was so kind blah 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 how can I ever repay you? And he's like, I didn't really ever want you to know, but also, like, I did all of that for you. You have to know it was for you. Like, let me know if you don't want to hear this again, but, like, I, I'm i still in love with you. My feelings are unchanged, like, etc., etc. Et and she's like, actually, my feelings are changed. <gasps> so they basically get engaged. Yeah. Funny thing about it is that they, like, keep this quiet from everyone for at least a full day yeah. before he goes and asks her dad's permission, which I just find amusing. She doesn't even tell Jane. The, She's the, just like... The reasoning, which I find very funny, is because she spent the majority of the book <laughs> talking Darcy, and she realizes <laughs> that nobody's going to believe her. <laughs> So she has to do all this work of explaining herself. So there's like, she first tells Jane and Jane's like, you can't be serious. You're not in love. You're, you're just joking around. And it, and it's kind of like, it's basically the Colin scene, but like five times over because she has to do this with first Jane <laughs> and then her dad and then her mom. And then it just down the line and it's, it's like, oh, f 
I, I, yeah. I should have been a little more sparing in my in my talking earlier. Yeah, the whole ex- explanation to Jane isn't helped either by the fact that Lizzie cannot stop joking during the entire scene. So Jane's <laughs> like, please be serious. I can't tell whether this is a joke or not. And Lizzie's like, yes, my feelings first started to change when I saw his wonderful house at Pemberley. And Jane's like, what? <laughs> And the the scene with her dad is actually probably one of the cutest father-daughter scenes in literature, so there is that. But yeah, eventually everyone actually believes she's going to marry Darcy, and she actually wants to marry Darcy, and uh, that's all settled. They have some just cute conversations, the two of them. It's it's good stuff, and then we get a nice little epilogue about what happens to everyone. Lizzie and Darcy get married. They go live happily at Pemberley. Georgiana lives with them, which is great for her. Jane and Bingley end up buying a house that's not more than 30 miles away. Kitty comes and mostly lives with uh, Jane and Lizzie and becomes a much better person because, like, they help her. Mary stays at home and seems happy about that. Uh, Lydia and Wickham's marriage is horrible. (laughs) They just... It's not horrible. I think it's, like, described that they, they eventually just grow completely indifferent to each other. Which, I mean, is horrible, but it's not, like, the worst outcome that could Well, be. but they also are always begging for money from Lizzie and Jane. Yeah, but that's <sighs> that's always kind of been their MO, because it suggested earlier that Lydia is terrible with money, is always yes. overspending, and so... And same same with Wickham, like, he has right. debts everywhere. So it's, it's kind of... It fits their characters. Yep, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Gardner always welcome visitors at Pemberley, and... That's that's the end of our tale. I'm so sorry that this um, <laughs> summary went on for five million years. <laughs> well, it's complicated. There's, it there's is. a lot of subtext that's going on. A lot of things working behind the scenes that you have to figure out. And everything has to break down. You know, like, yeah. it's, it's interesting because they have one of the, the cute conversations that you referred to between Liz and Darcy. They basically talk about how they were both huge assholes to Mm -hmm. each other at first. And they talk through their gradual process of change. And that's when we find out, like, why Darcy started acting differently and was starting to treat Liz's family well and not just be the huge butthead that he was being up to that point. And... It's a lot, clearly, of him doing a lot of self-reflecting and self-criticism and learning from that and modifying his behavior from that, which there's a very sweet line in there where he's like, I took what you said to heart and I tried to change my behavior, if only to earn your forgiveness. And it's like, aw, that's really sweet. Yeah. Now that's that's how you handle rejection, men. You know? Yeah. And so like there's there's a lot of different strings working at any given time. It makes yeah. sense why your summary ran for I don't know, half an hour or however long it <laughs> Whatever <did>. it was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think uh starting with Lizzie and Darcy's relationship, I think one of the things that gets lobbed at that relationship by people who haven't read the book and only sort of know the bare bones is that like mm-hmm. that Darcy is like an whole the entire time and that like it's about basically Lizzie learning to deal with that and so I think it's so important like what you said that last scene and the fact that like no it's a story about two people 
who are very proud and form very strong initial prejudices. Oh! <laughs> Woo! Whoa! That's the title of the book! Yeah. Who learn that they they need to become better people. Like, Lizzie learns to stop making these... Snap judgments about people and to be thinking more critically and things like that. And yeah, Darcy learns that he, you know, has to change how he acts. If the woman he was in love with, and he he says this, he thought that she knew his feelings and was basically waiting for him to ask her. If if the woman he was in love with thought he hated her, <laughs> like that's a problem. <laughs> And he recognizes that and, and recognizes his error in a lot of other things. And it's about both of them making these realizations because of each other and changing and having like respect for one another. And it's, it's good. It's not like in any way a, a toxic relationship. Like they make each other better people, literally. It is interesting because there's like a point at the end of the book about how the importance of whoever you end up marrying being able to learn and grow from that person mm-hmm. and being able to teach that person as well. This book, what this book does really well is that it's it shows so many different types of relationships and contrasts them so well. So you see, you learn more about uh, the dad's relationship with the mom and how there's just absolutely no respect from the dad for the mom. And you learn that the dad only married the mom because she was hot and only realized later that she was also very, very dumb. And so rather than try to like work with her, like basically educate her, I guess is what the book is suggesting. Mr. Bennett just decides, ah, whatever. I'm just going to find my entertainment wherever I can. And he decides that his favorite form of entertainment is watching his wife and his daughters being ridiculous, which ends up leading to disaster with Lydia. It's all your fault! All your fault! We warned you! So you get this contrast of, like, the dad and the mom have no real connection, and so they don't learn and grow from each other. Mr. Bennett has, like, he's very pretty explicit to to Liz. If you're marrying him just for money, but you don't actually respect him, like, don't do it, because you're going to end up miserable basically like me there are a lot of nice contrasts throughout the book of different relationships and the forms they take and sort of which ways are better and which ways are not so good yeah so it's clear there's a lot of mutual respect between liz and darcy that at the end of the book comes to fruition in this moment of like yeah you know we recognize our own mistakes and we're gonna move forward and forgive each other. It's interesting because it it seems to suggest that it's like a thing that's kind of like taboo now, the idea of like being able to change your partner. Clearly back then they felt like you you could to some degree. And I guess you can. Right. You don't form a life bond with somebody without affecting some kind of change on that person. I think um, the interesting thing about that, and I'm just looking up the name of this book because I've forgotten it. I think the difference is that, like, don't get into a relationship with someone thinking you could change them. Because I, I think that's the big distinguishing thing. Lucy and Darcy don't enter into a relationship until they've already changed. 
Like the change has already been affected. You should never go in hoping you can do that, which is the subject of, let's see, ah, Anne Bronte's <laughs> novel, The Tenet of Wildfell Hall. Oh, yes. Which is all about the um, protagonist marrying someone and believing she can change him mm-hmm. and that being married will cause a change in him. And like, spoiler alert, it doesn't. <laughs> so I think that that's part of the lesson too. It's not like... If, if Lizzie had said yes to Darcy the first time, I don't know whether their marriage would have been as happy. I'd like to think they would have figured it out. But like, if he hadn't had that very crucial rejection, who knows whether he ever would have had the motivation or had the sort of like shock to his system he needed to change. And a shock to the system it is. And I mean, I could speak personally, dealing with rejection is, it could be very good for helping you <laughs> helping motivate you to make some much needed changes and uh, that was nice to see i think why some people might look at this relationship and be like oh darcy's an hole <laughs> is that we don't actually see darcy's end of things because this is all bas- it basically follows liz's perspective so when darcy's not around you just don't know what's going on with him so you only learn really about him changing in the few scenes that he shows up now and then and then at the very end when he gives his monologue about what he went through and the kind of come to jesus moment he had i can see how it would be very easy to miss because like three quarters of the book you're dealing with this whole darcy Right. And it's only in the last quarter where you really see Darcy start to change and you actually see that change in his behavior. Yeah. Although I will argue that I think, not that Darcy doesn't pull some <laughs> moves, because he definitely does. Um, but I think that his character is a little more nuanced than that even before his big change. Yes. We do get some insight into his mind, but I think two sort of key things for me... He has, well, they're at Lady Catherine de Bourgh's. He has this conversation with Lizzie where he admits to like having a really hard time talking to new people. And he has this quote where he says, I cannot catch their tone of conversation or appear interested in their concerns as I've often seen done. So it seems like like in general, socialization is like hard for Darcy, especially with people he doesn't know well. And Lizzie makes the a very excellent comment where she's like, look, I'm not very good at playing the piano, but like... Part of that's because I don't practice. And maybe if I practiced, I'd get better. Just good advice for everyone. But also there's a conversation they have at another field where Darcy is talking about how his like big fault is that once crossed, like he won't forgive someone. Everybody betrayed me. I fed up with his world. His regard once lost is lost forever. I think it's interesting because I think he's actually a little bit proud of his temper and he holds that character trait in high esteem even when he's saying that it's a bad thing. And so I think that also gives insight into like, yeah, the ways in which he's messed up that kind of go there. It's more nuanced than illness. Yeah. When I say that he's an asshole, I say in full recognition that of all the characters in this book, I relate to him the most. <laughs> These are things that I like, especially that first part, you know, I remember Morgan, the first time we met, how you just refused to talk to me. For like the first what? three months that we worked in the same office. That was you. Okay. I would say it was both of us. But, <laughs> <laughs> but 
but yes, like the having a hard time socializing with new people and just being completely uncomfortable with that. Oh, do I understand that feeling? Mm-hmm. That's true. I do too. And the second part, sir, oh boy, if you wrong me, I will never forget. It reminds me of this story. This one time about four, five years ago, I was visiting New York to visit a couple of friends who lived there. I was staying at one Casey here, interrupting, well, myself. So I go on a very long, self-indulgent rant here about this one time that an acquaintance forced my friends and I to go eat bad Mexican food in New York City. It's not really relevant here, so <laughs> I'm just going to move us along. Drunk as a skunk, I, I will never forgive him for that. For the indecency of forcing us to eat shitty Mexican food. So, I can relate to Darcy. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely relate to Darcy <laughs> that way, too. Anywho, we should get back to Pride and Prejudice. You're right. There's more nuance to Darcy. It's And, and I think there's this kind of prevailing theme of looking at a person seeing their behavior and assuming it's because of x y or z negative reason so throughout the book i think wickham specifically tells liz that miss darcy georgiana is basically a bitch and so that liz has that in mind but when liz finally meets miss darcy she just realizes that she's just incredibly shy by some people that gets read as her being incredibly prideful but it's it's not they're projecting onto her character and that's that's happens a lot in this book and even like even the first couple lines of the book allude you know it's a it's a universal truth it's a truth universally acknowledged but then the second line completely undercuts that because then you find out oh it's actually just like what these people are assuming must be mm-hmm. the case. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really interesting because I don't think enough books talk about this, but I think Pride and Prejudice does to a certain extent, where we're like, we all, to some extent, project what we think a person is onto them. Like, even with people you know really well, like, I have an idea of who Casey is. Like, Oh, what is your idea of me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not... I can't do a quick character sketch here. I'm not Jane Austen. (laughs) But, like, my idea of who you are isn't going to, by necessity, like, be all of who you are. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. know certain things. And also, like, the way that I see you is going to be different than who you truly are. So, to some extent, like, I project an idea of who Casey is onto you, right? And I think that that's something that, like, happens over and over again in this book is, like, people projecting onto other people in a really interesting way. Even like Darcy admits that when he was examining, or does he admit or does Lizzie just kind of intuit this? But like Darcy kind of wants Bingley to marry his sister Georgiana. And so when he's examining Jane's behavior the first time around, to some extent he's biased by what he wants. And so he kind of projects that onto Jane. To some extent, Jane is really good at hiding her feelings. But to some extent, also, like, Darcy had an idea already of how she felt and who she was and projected that onto her. And sometimes it leads to, like, I I can think of, not to get into it, but I can think of moments, like, trying to figure you out, like, when we were first hanging out and, like, 
just being completely off. When I first met you, it wasn't that you were standoffish, but you just did not seem interested in anybody or anything <laughs> at all. Like you were in your own world. You're just like, don't bug me. <laughs> I was in the workplace. I was just doing my work. You hated me. You hated me. Exactly. That's exactly my point. There's contextual reasons why you were operating that way that make complete sense. But me having not seen you outside of the workplace, just assume, oh, this is who she is as a person. That's one of the things I really like about this book is that every character is allowed to be flawed but also allowed to be good in other ways or virtuous. And sometimes mm -hmm. a character's flaws are also their, their best characteristics. So like Jane is just the most loving, generous, kind-hearted, optimistic person. She always tries to think the best of everybody when she's told information that paints somebody in a bad light. She always tries to figure out ways to spin it so that actually maybe that person's just misunderstood. And that leads her to giving Darcy the benefit of the doubt. She's one of the only people to do that. But at the same time, it also leads her to give Miss Bingley the benefit of, of the doubt. And so it backfires on that. And, and the same with Liz. Like, she's a very proud, discerning person. And she recognizes a lot of the flaws and she's very good at reading people very quickly. So that benefits her in some cases, but also she's very proud of that aspect of her. So it creates some blind spots. So like when Wickham comes along, beautiful Timothy, <laughs> she's blind to his flaws because he's just so gorgeous and so charming that she doesn't see the flaws at first. And so I love that. Every character is allowed that kind of nuance. Even Charlotte, when she decides to marry Mr. Collins, which is generally agreed even by the novel, I think, is just a bad idea because Mr. Collins is just the worst. Yeah. But it acknowledges in this really like touching scene about how this marriage isn't just a benefit for Charlotte, but it breaks down how all the benefits uh, trickle down, so to speak. I regret to say that we're in the worst economic mess since the Great Depression. To the rest of the family. Now the parents will like have this connection that sort of elevates them, and the sisters won't have to worry about being poor, and the brothers will be benefited, benefited as well from this connection. And so you sort of see like the the... The way that marriage spills over and impacts more than just Charlotte. She's really thinking about her family. It says a lot about her. It says a lot right. about like what a good, kind person she is, that she really taking one for the team here. And I think we're meant to look at that decision and then like implicitly contrast it with Lizzie's decision to reject both Mr. Collins and Mr. Darcy. Although, like, yes, the novel says that was the right thing to do. But it also, like, Lizzie's family is in danger. If her dad dies, if she had, less so if she married Mr. Collins, but definitely if she'd married Mr. Darcy straight off the bat, she could have 
ensured the safety of her family going forwards. And she makes the decision not to do that. And it's, it's the correct decision. And she ends up marrying him anyway, so it doesn't matter. But like, I think it, yeah, it's both of those decisions are given nuance. You're given to understand that, yes, one is a better decision than the other. But like, you fully see the good and bad sides to both. Also, the I mean, like you said, Charlotte is plain. She's old for the time. 20, 27, which mm-hmm. makes this bachelor of 29 going on 30 relatively good looking guy i would say personally speaking it makes me feel a way darcy's 28 if that helps monica just broke my seashell lamp (laughs) neat i'm gonna die alone you know it it really makes it clear like this is charlotte's best shot at probably not only just like marrying at all but marrying to her own financial advantage and i think that's that's something that this book also delves into in a way that like any kind of romantic plot in any other book or movie or story never really does is that marriage is not just a proposal based on love it's an economic decision it's also like a social decision who are you marrying what is their circle who's their family what are you attaching yourself to? Even nowadays, that kind of plays out not to the same degree that it does in Pride and Prejudice, where it's like, oh, you definitely cannot marry them because their family sucks and they're poor and they suck. But I do think it's it's something that you're mindful of. Like, yeah, I'm attaching myself to this person and all of her connections. Well, in my case, it would be her. Uh, there's a lot more nuance to deciding who you're going to get involved with than just like I'm attracted to that person I like that person because we do see an example of that happening here where two people get involved with each other because they're both attractive or at least one of them finds the other very attractive and then as it turns out Lydia and Wickham are both completely miserable right I think that, so, (laughs) gonna nerd out for a bit here. Um, Pride and Prejudice comes at a really interesting time in the development of, like, the romance plot or the marriage plot. So it was written during Regency England, and I'm mostly drawing right now from this excellent book called Romance's Rival by Talia Schaefer, which is all about sort of the progression in the marriage plot from the perfect suitor being what she calls the familiar suitor, to the romantic suitor. Her, she mostly focuses on the Victorian era when that transition fully happens to the romantic suitor. But Pride and Prejudice kind of acts as a transition. So like the familiar suitor is normally someone who like is like a cousin, for instance, or like a neighbor, or like is in the same town. And they represent not only themselves, but also all of those familiar things. Whereas the romantic suitor is much more what we would think about as like, yeah, a romantic suitor. Like normally they enter the story in motion. They're all about like the now. They're all about attraction and passion and those sorts of things. But they're not necessarily about longevity the way like Mm -hmm. a familiar suitor is. They're not, there isn't all of this past in history to them. They're very much like the now of romance. Yeah. Interestingly, we get an example of the familiar suitor with Mr. Collins and, and that was... He's the suitor that's kind of phasing out at this point. Like, 
the familiar suitor kind of goes away, but like that was the suitor people ended up with in earlier novels. That was the ideal suitor. And Wickham is, is the romantic suitor. He comes in, he's very like, he's hot. He comes in walking in motion. He's like wild and untamed and etc. Uh-huh. And Darcy kind of manages to meld these two things because he has definite aspects of the romantic suitor, but also like their relationship is one, not, not really built on passion. It's built on respect and mutual regard. But I think it's really interesting because I think Pride and Prejudice is, is one of the first novels where you see that transition truly happening before we get to it, like fully happening in the Victorian area. Yeah, it does. It rides the line. And I think it's, it's so fascinating to see this book. It advocates for companion love, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a line that Liz says early in the novel about how you can't possibly know somebody after two weeks. Uh, and she said, I think she's saying this to Jane in regards to Bingley and sort of kind of like, Hey, just a warning, you know, just kind of, you know, take it slow. And that's exactly what happens with Liz and Darcy where they don't know each other at first. And they actually kind of despise each other at first, but as they get to know each other, they develop that respect that underlies any kind of love that they have. It's, built on this foundation of friendship, essentially, that you just know that regardless of whatever happens after this novel, they're going to be okay because they Mm -hmm. have that foundation. Jane and Bingley are going to be okay because they they have that kind of mutual admiration that's built as their foundation. Lydia and Wickham definitely do not. Wickham has no respect at all for Lydia and it's actually kind of unclear. Maybe you can help me out here. It's unclear why, like, it's clear why she runs off with him because he's hot. But it's not clear to me why he brings her along when he's basically running away from his debts. Like, I'm not sure I get why that happens in particular. Yeah, I think basically the novel's explanation is she was there, she wasn't willing, and he didn't really have the ability to turn her down. Well, haven't we all been there? Catch the next episode next week on Reread. See you then. Say you don't